Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the lion hunt begins at dawn while the tribe sleeps. The young men meet at a fixed location as they prepare to go out to the hunting grounds. The older, experienced warriors carefully go through, filtering out only the bravest and strongest warriors. The resulting group is known as the Elamua, or fearless warriors. They're often forced to relinquish most of their excess weaponry because it's considered an insult to take anything other than a spear, which is more than sufficient to slay a lion. The warriors set out with a combination of excitement and anticipation and fear because they know it's for good reason that lions are called the king of beasts. But today the tables have turned. The hunter has become the hunted. Earth's greatest predator has become prey because the lion hunt has begun. Are you familiar with the ancient practice of the Maasai warriors? Uh, they still reside in Kenya and Tanzania. And this rite of passage where a boy becomes a man, a civilian becomes a soldier, is called the lion hunt. At the end, after a successful hunt, the tribe will hold a week-long celebration to welcome back and commemorate the warriors. The warrior who struck the first blow receives an impuro, which is the lion's mane uh, that's been fit and wrapped around his shoulders. And he'll be treated with honor as a hero for as long as he lives. Well, I watched a, uh, a documentary or a short film on the Maasai people and was just fascinated by this ancient rite of passage and very grateful that we don't have a similar thing in our culture. I have plenty of reasons to feel inadequate as a man. I don't need to have the lion like killing thing there as well. We don't have a whole lot of rites of passage in our culture, but there are some. We think about the bar and bat mitzvah for the Jewish community where a young Hebrew boy or girl becomes a man or a woman in the eyes of the community. In the Latino community, we have quinceanera, a similar sort of rite of passage. Certain occupations have rites of passage of sorts. For a soldier, it's called boot camp. For a lawyer, it's called the bar exam. For any an aspiring American who's got talent, it's to stand in front of Simon Cowell. Like, that's the rite of passage uh, for literally decades now. Have there been any rites of passage that you have been a part of? Maybe you were a part of Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. They have some rite of passage ceremonies there. Maybe you were in a faith tradition that had First Communion, and that was a rite of passage for you or for your family. Maybe you were in a fraternity or a sorority, and it was called hazing. But we can't do that anymore, right? Most of us have been part of graduation ceremonies, where we move from one phase of life to another. And most of us have experienced maybe the most important rite of passage of all, that of driver's education. 
You know, when you're young and you're, you're 15 or approaching 16 and you feel stuck and you're trapped and you're confined in your parents' home, you don't have freedom. The car represents freedom, but you have to learn. You have to go through driver's ed. You have to get that driver's license, and then the whole world opens up for you. For many, that's a rite of passage. Well, rites of passage, people who, who have studied these things say there are three things that each rite of passage, large or small, uh, does. And the stages are this, separation, transition, and reincorporation. So in separation, that's a, a phase of being separated, either literally or figuratively, from one's former life and moving towards an identity, a new identity or future. Second is a transition. That's sort of an in-between time where you, you haven't gotten into the new, but you've let go of the old. And it's usually marked by a series of trials and tests. And it's that place that the personal transformation occurs. And then there's step three, the reincorporation, which is after having proved oneself, there's a celebration, a return to society, complete with the grand celebration of new life. So you track in, you follow in the idea of the rite of passage in a bar or bat mitzvah where a boy becomes a man or a girl becomes a woman. The boot camp where a civilian becomes a soldier or in driver's ed where a teenager becomes a terror. These are all rites of passage. Well, why take a few moments to unpack this idea starting with uh, lion hunting? Well, as I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke, and as I'm looking at Luke chapters 3 and 4, which maybe you've read, or, or maybe this week will be a time where you engage with it, that idea of rite of passage seemed to be that connecting metaphor of what's happening in the life of Jesus in the story of Luke. There are three significant events that take place in Jesus' life in these chapters. There's his baptism. There's his time in the wilderness with his trials and temptation. And then he returns to begin his ministry in Nazareth. And some amazing things happen there. And as we think about what's happening in these chapters, I'd encourage you to think along the lines of, this is sort of a rite of passage where Jesus has his 30 years of preparation beforehand. And it's in these chapters that he begins his work of ministry because he has a unique calling and purpose that's nothing short of bringing God's kingdom to bear on earth and to be the savior of the world. And it's in these rites of passage and baptism he has his identity solidified. It's in the wilderness that his calling is established and as he leaves from there, he is empowered by God's spirit to be and bring good news. And the result is that we're here today. It's this rite of passage idea that I want to unpack. There's a lot happening. And so I'm going to focus less on the events of those individual stories and more on the significance of the events Focus on the story behind the story, and then maybe as you, uh, after this, go and look at, maybe it will help you understand what's happening in Jesus' life and apply it to your life. By the way, this may be a great time to do a plug for our journey uh, online devotional. Everyone know what that is? Anyone? Yeah? Uh, hopefully you've subscribed to it. It's just our way of helping 
each of us walk through a little bit of Scripture together. So we are in the Gospel of Luke. By the way, this particular week, if you go on to the journey, you'll explore each of these passages I'll refer to in greater detail. You may also not be aware, but we do a daily podcast or video cast that's just eight to ten minutes unpacking what's happening in the story. These are just ways to resource what God wants to do in your life because we're convinced that the encounter of God through Scripture and prayer in meaningful relationships is the foundation of the spiritual life. The Bible has worked for thousands of years. God has been present through prayer, and he's used communities of people, and he changes us when we encounter him through his word. Are you with me on that? Okay, enough of that little plug. So today, let's focus on the events that serve as a rite of passage for our Savior. And we start with stage one that we might call separation. For this, this is just Jesus' baptism experience. We find it in Luke chapter 3. It says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. That's the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that would redeem all of God's people. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So there was something about the movement of God and the apostle John. By the way, John is Jesus' cousin. We encountered him in Luke chapter 1. He's become John the Baptist, and people are flocking to him because they know the kingdom of God is coming. And so they're repenting, they're turning away from their lives of sin. And then John looks up and he sees Jesus, his cousin, approaching. And Jesus is coming into the water as well. And so the text continues, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So lest uh, I, I speak the obvious, that last little phrase, this is Luke's way of saying Jesus' ministry begins now through his baptism. He's inaugurated into his public ministry. But this has confused and confounded faithful Christians for, for centuries. Like, so baptism is for what? Kind of symbolizing repentance and forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Have we gotten it wrong? Was he actually sinful? Well, no, we don't believe that. So why did he need to be baptized? And my best take on this is that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for himself for his own sin. But it was his way of entering into the world, into our story, because he was the one through whom the sins of everyone might be forgiven and healed. 
So Jesus needed to step into that which John was speaking. There is one who's coming who will bring the kingdom, who will offer the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus came all the way down to be with us. And while the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. When baptism, it represented this clear line of demarcation for him. It was a culmination of 30 years of preparation for what would be three years of ministry. I don't know about you, but uh, in and of myself, I would, I would you know, um, assume God might have been able to like just front load the training with Jesus and then get to the work. But that's not the way it happened. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. And I take encouragement from that. Because most of my life, most of the Christian life of growth is, is ups and downs, moving forward and setbacks. I spend a whole lot of time waiting for what I hope to happen. And it turns out Jesus spent a lot of time waiting as well. But here's the deal. While Jesus was waiting, God was working. While Jesus was waiting, God was working. Jesus spent time learning, growing, just like we do. Jesus had to spend time with the Father. Jesus had to learn a trade, all of those things. While Jesus was waiting, God was working. And maybe the most important work he was doing during that time was just placing the Father, placing his identity on his Son. Because this is profound and powerful to me. When the Holy Spirit, when the Father said those words as Jesus was being baptized, this is my son, I love him, I'm very proud of him. Jesus hadn't done a single thing. No messages had been said, nobody had been healed, no movement had happened. John the Baptist himself seems to be surprised. I was waiting for the Messiah. It's you. This is profound and powerful. Because the same thing's true for us. The Father loves us, accepts us as a son or daughter before we've done anything for him. In the waiting, God is working. See, we get it backwards so often. At least I do. I'm someone who likes to be active. I want to get to the work. I don't like to wait. That's been much of my life and including my faith journey. I'm one who thankfully said yes to Jesus at a young age, but then it seems like I've spent most of my life trying to please God in some way. I assume that if I work harder or do enough, maybe I will have more favor. And I forget that so often it's in the waiting that God is working, that the Father loves me and accepts me no matter what I do or do not this was sort of profound for me about 10 years ago. Um, I, my wife and I had helped plant a church in Lawrence, and about the time it was starting to grow and thrive and we were established, I was sort of wearing myself out with all the messages that needed to be taught and meetings that needed to be led and angry phone calls I had to respond to and, and the like. And so as I was doing all the right things, I found myself feeling increasingly far from God. And what uh, became crystal clear after one Sunday as I had 
taught a message about how we're children of God, I realized, you know, I know what it's like to be God's servant, but I don't know what it's like to be God's son. Can you resonate with that? You may spend your life and your time trying to do the right thing, be good enough, make God proud, make other people happy, put on a good face. But do you know what it's like to be his son or his daughter? Well, fortunately, the Lord's been uh, moving in my life to understand that better. I'm in a different place now. But one of those ways that he did that for me was making me a father. Because about 10 years ago, I had the privilege, my wife and I, of adopting Patrick Mahomes into our family. (laughs) I think we have a picture here. This is Drew. This is my son. I love that kid. I'm really proud of that kid. He's my son. I love him. And so it's, it's pretty common that from a young age, I would just ask Drew, Drew, what are the three most important things to know about yourself? And it didn't take him long to know what those were because I'd say it over and over again. I'm your son. You love me so much. You're very proud of me. I mean, I figure if the father said those things to Jesus, I might as well say them to my son, right? And so Drew knows to the core of his being that he's my son, that I love him so much that I'm really, really proud of him. I'm a very, very imperfect and broken father, but I have that kind of love for my son, and that was there before he'd done anything. We serve a very good and loving Heavenly Father who feels the same way about each and every one of you. You're his daughter. You're his son. He loves you so much. He's very proud of you. So in stage one, that's that separation stage that Jesus experienced at the baptism where his former life, that season of preparation was ended and now he begins the work of ministry spoken his identity by the Father, empowered with the Holy Spirit. And so we move into stage two in this sort of rite of passage from his life to his ministry, and that's in the wilderness. And so the text begins in Luke chapter four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I don't have time to go into the details here. But in that state of testing and trial and temptation, he was deeply hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He had deep needs. The enemy uh, made him or encouraged him to question, hey, does the Father really love you? Is he really there for you? Satan encouraged him to take the shortcut was promised all the kingdoms of the earth without having to go through the cross. Taking the easy way. But Jesus didn't give in. And so it concludes this passage of the story. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time that would come about three years later. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power and news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So if the second phase in a rite of passage is the transition, we might expect Jesus, now that he's given the Holy Spirit at his baptism, to go and do the work of ministry, but instead he's led into the wilderness. And I've got to wonder, did Jesus know exactly what was going on? Or, or I wonder if he wondered the same things we wonder when we're in those times. Did I get it wrong? What's the matter? I, I don't like this. What's happening to me? God, where are you? You see, if our times of wilderness, or if Jesus' time of wilderness is any indication of ours, it seems like the Father sees wilderness times very different than we might. Because these trials are the marks of transition wherein his transformation can occur. See, there's no accident Jesus wound up where he was in the wilderness. Indeed, the text is very explicit. Luke wants you to know that the Father led him in this direction. So Jesus left baptism. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he immediately is led by that very same Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted but after overcoming those trials and temptations, Jesus returned to Galilee, and he's now filled not just with the Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit's power. You see, wilderness is a significant time in Jesus' rite of passage, and it's true for us as well, because it's in the wilderness that Jesus learns to rely fully and completely on the Holy Spirit and not on himself. It's in the wilderness that Jesus demonstrates that faith is established more through trials than triumphs and more through suffering than success. It's in the wilderness that Jesus' faith is tried, it's tested, it's found sufficient, it's strengthened. And as a result, Jesus is empowered to do what he couldn't have otherwise done in his own power. I guarantee you Jesus wouldn't have chosen the wilderness as the next step. But the Father in his wisdom sent him there because Jesus needed to be able to do everything that was asked of him, relying on the Holy Spirit and having the strength to go to the cross. Do you remember what uh, John announced about Jesus? Hey, there's one who will come after me. He's the one. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I kind of get the Holy Spirit idea, at least cognitively, but what's the deal with the fire? Have you ever seen like a blacksmith forge? Have you ever seen that? See, fire has a unique ability to harden, to shape, to sharpen, to take a lump uh, that is worthless essentially of metal or coal or, or what have you and to fashion it into something useful, something purposeful. This is what times in wilderness do. They reveal our limitations. They deepen our trust. They test our motivations. They build character. It's not easy it's painful, isn't it? 
but those are the things that empower us to do what otherwise we could not have done. So one of those rites of passage uh, for, for a young family are the toddler years. And it's full of joys and challenges and all of those things. And I've found that in my experience, usually moms have like a second nature, like they get how to do this and dads don't, or at least I didn't. And so my means of, uh, of time with dad was like going on excursions with my kids. And one of my favorite ones was going to Deanna Rose the children's farmstead. And so we'd go and we'd see uh, the cows and we'd see the chickens and we would fish. And here's a picture of Stella, my youngest. She's now seven. Uh, Here's a picture of the first fish she caught (laughs) out at Deanna Rose. Uh, She was really pleased to have caught it and then didn't want to touch it. And uh, if you know Stella, she's just got this beautiful personality. She loves... um, just being on stage, and she would be very angry at me if I showed this picture. So tell her I showed this picture. This is my Stella. So, so when you get to have the privilege of speaking, like it can become like sharing pictures of your family. Um, but I bring it up because my kids and I love to go and see the Blacksmith Forge at Deanna Rose. Have you seen this? Here's an actual picture. This is in our backyard at this Deanna Rose Children's Farmstead. And it's amazing to listen to the blacksmith as he's fashioning something that is strong but really worthless into something of value. This is what times of wilderness do. How many of you have been through times of wilderness? How many really liked it? How many of you are there now? You don't have to raise your hand. It's common to ask in the wilderness, what's wrong? Why am I here? And even, God, where are you? It's okay to ask those questions. But just know God is with you in the wilderness. And while it may hurt, while you may not choose it, God has a different perspective. You see, the thing about the wilderness for you and I is it can be a test. It can reveal the quality of our lives, and it can also be a test that lets God know, hey, where are you? Where are you? See, God has a way of using times of wilderness. I'm not saying he causes them, by the way, though he can use them as times of transition and transformation that can empower you to do what you could not have otherwise done. So in November, I had the chance to go back to Lawrence, uh, where we had planted that church, where we had started our family. And, And we do some study leaves here at Heartland that help us prepare for the next season of what's coming up. And so I was preparing for kind of this first quarter And went to Signs of Life and had a cup of coffee. That's my favorite coffee shop. And was doing some work. And then met a good buddy at Zen Zero for some Thai food. And then had a little bit of time where I'd finished the work that I'd wanted to do. And so I took a little trip down memory lane while in Lawrence. And so I drove by uh, through downtown, around campus, remembering some of my favorite memories in 08, the national championship driving down to Mastery. 
I remember those incredible days when Holly and I, when we uh, left our home to adopt our children, first Drew, then Stella. So many great memories. I also drove by each of the locations we had our church uh, services. It was called Vintage Church. The church is still there, by the way. And just get to remember the amazing things God did. When we moved there, I was 27 and Holly was 24. I can't imagine that God did anything. How could he do something with a punk kid and his beautiful bride? But it happened. I remember the first summer baptism where four college students were baptized in Potter's Lake. And that was the only time we did that because it's a really disgusting little lake (laughs) on campus. But thinking about the names and the faces, the lives that had been changed, the families that had been strengthened, the students who'd come to faith, all of those things. And I was blown away at the goodness and graciousness of God. And so before I left town, I uh, drove to Prairie Park. It was about half a mile from the last house we lived in. And I used to spend a lot of time walking through Prairie Park and walking around this lake called Mary's Lake. And it was just a great chance to remember the incredible things that God had done while in Lawrence. And so I was just kind of riffing in my brain, kind of in, in terms of just remembering, but also prayer. Um, you know, when I think of Lawrence, I think about the national championship, or I think about these dear friends, or I think about the way God used us in ministry, or I think about bringing Drew and then Stella into our home, all of those things. And I remember distinctly as I'm walking around Mary's Lake, I felt like I heard the Lord. And when I say heard, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was this impression. And it was just simply this. When I think about Lawrence, this is what I think about. When I think about Lawrence, from when God thinks about the time in Lawrence, I think what he remembers is me, his son, just walking around this lake in prayer, spending time with him, learning what it meant to move from being a servant to being a son. I was really captured by that idea. I was really blessed and touched. It seemed so kind. That would not have been something I would have thought of. That's one way I think uh, that when God speaks, I kind of know it because it's not really my voice. And so I took out my phone and went to my calendar. It was November 7th, and I I thought, we moved about seven years ago. Where was I November 7th of seven years ago? And it dawned on me at that point. Those three months from October to December were one of the most challenging seasons of my entire life. Having stepped away from a church that we'd founded, not knowing what the next step was, I remember feeling in the wilderness and the father was so kind to say, hey, when I I think about Lawrence, I think about this time with you. He had a very different perspective of that than I did. And that time uh, in the fire forged and prepared me for whatever was next as a father, as a pastor, and all of those things. Well, stage three, reincorporation, that's a return to community, being empowered for purpose. And here's how Jesus reengages with his community. 
So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He set to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, through his baptism, it's, it's where he begins, where the, the Spirit falls upon him, and he ends his preparation and begins uh, the work of ministry. He's led into the wilderness, and then he returns. He's empowered with the Spirit to teach and to heal. And so it's in the synagogue, in this moment, in Jesus' hometown, where Jesus lays claim to his role and his calling as our Savior. It's in the synagogue that Jesus announces that God's kingdom is coming. There'll be sight for the blind. The oppressed will be free. The year of the Lord's favor. My, thy kingdom will come. Thy will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. This is what's happening in the moment. Jesus is laying claim to that. And so it's in the synagogue that Jesus declares with that divine authority. And then he will prove it because he's empowered by the Spirit. And he brings the good news and he shares it. And people who are far from God come home. And people who are suffering and struggling are healed. And God's kingdom literally breaks in. And how's he treated? What's his response like? Well, it turns out that Jesus didn't just come for the Hebrew people. He came for everyone. He came for the stranger, for the foreigner, people like you and I. And this was too much for them. And so Jesus' friends and neighbors in this little synagogue, what it says is, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, what can we learn and apply to our lives through Jesus' rite of passage journey? There are a few things before we conclude that I just want to remind us. First idea is just simply baptism. Jesus stepped into that rite of passage and he asks all of us who would be followers of him to step into the waters of baptism as well. Traditionally, the Christian church has used the time between Advent, that's Christmas, and Easter as a time uh, to, to be trained to learn the things of Jesus in preparation for baptism. And so my two encouragements for you are simply this. One, use this time to be a learner of Jesus. Yes, come to church and worship and hear someone like me talk about the Gospel of Luke. Like, that's a good thing. But more importantly, spend time in Luke for yourself. Get to know who Jesus is. Learn to hear his voice. Learn to follow him. If you've never taken the step to be baptized, use this as your time of training. And pray and ask God to prepare your heart because around Easter will open up the opportunity for you to dive into the water and take the plunge in baptism. There's no more significant rite of passage that you or I could ever have than stepping into those waters. And I want to seed that for us now. But for us, our lives 
It's not like it happens immediately. Our spiritual life and our growth happens over time, and we go through different seasons of waiting. And so if you're in one of those seasons of waiting, just know that God is working, and what he's working on is forming his identity in you as a son or daughter. Before you do anything, that's what he wants you to know. Remember that it's in times of trial, maybe you're there, that God will fashion your calling. And in so doing, he will do in you what you could have never done yourself. And he'll prepare you to do what you couldn't otherwise have done. But third, when you're empowered by the Spirit and living out your calling, just know that people will disapprove of you. It's not the way the world works. That's not what's valued. So often we think when we experience trials or, or people don't like us or there's hardship, we think, gosh, God, where are you? Or what am I doing wrong? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if your life is comfortable or easy, it may be that God is very far But if you're encountering waiting or trials or people disapproving of you, there's a very good chance that you're doing what God wants you to do. This is a pathed passage for Jesus, and you and I are in the same boat. So we have one more song. Let's have the band join us. You can stand, if you will, if you're able just have one last thought, and it it's, seems a little odd to me. That whole lion story at the beginning, I like the rite of passage idea, but I, I, I just didn't know if it, if it fit per se. But as I studied a little bit more, uh, it's a bit gruesome, it's a bit scary. I love animals, and so I don't love this idea, but there's a transformation happening in the Maasai people. Now, certainly lion hunts still happen uh, today, but, but as there's more conscientiousness about life and wildlife, as they're starting to think, how can we preserve uh, these incredible animals like lions? Who better to know and care for than the Maasai people? And so the Maasai people who know them better than anyone, many of them are starting to become not lion hunters, but lion guardians to preserve and protect this species. And so for some reason, there was a powerful thought in that, that Jesus was God in the flesh who came to the earth, making himself vulnerable. Jesus, who's the lion of Judah, who comes with power, takes upon himself the sins of the world through his death. And in so doing, that creates the rite of passage that's available for anyone who would come not on our own accord, but who would confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that we'd confess our need. And that Jesus walked through this life as one of us. He came out on the other side. And because he did, we might be able to as well. And so because he's done that, there's nothing that's holding us back. Not sin, not the grave, nothing past, present, and future, not even hell has the power to separate us from the love of God. And so I'm going to pray and we'll close and worship together. 
If you'd like prayer for anything, if the Lord's been moving on your heart, we'd love to do that. You can come forward at the end of the service and folks will pray for you. That today might be a significant moment on your journey as you follow Jesus. A path that so often does have triumphs, but trials. We get to resurrection, but we go through death as well. And so let me pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for each friend who's gathered here. Lord, thank you for a work that you're doing in uh, our church collectively. And thank you for the works that you're doing in each person's life. I want to pray particularly for those who are waiting and really having trouble waiting. Will you give them encouragement? Uh, Will you use this time to help form in them the identity that you have as a son or daughter? I want to pray for those who are experiencing trial or testing or temptation. Will you be their strength? Will you let them surrender to you? And will you prepare them to do what they couldn't otherwise have done? And for those who are experiencing the disapproval of others, especially as they're doing what you're asking them to do, give them encouragement. That if that was the way of Jesus, that's a pretty good way for us to go as well. Lord, be our guide this day and every day. 